0: Sometimes, life comes at you with ferocity, on the job or at home, a loss, defeat, or embarrassment. In football, they call it a blitz, when the defense organizes intense and, they hope, unexpected pressure on the offense. And it's the quarterback who must deal with that pressure and recognize that it also presents opportunity for the entire team. Our guest is the son of a star quarterback and American political icon, And during his own 11-year NFL career, he once had to step in to replace an injured Joe Montana. Talk about expectations. However, our conversation today goes well beyond football. Our guest is now a speaker and advisor to families, work teams, and entire businesses. So let's talk about lessons in leadership, humility, teamwork, and clarity in your message. It's the author of Facing the Blitz, Jeff Kemp, on the Manage Your Message podcast.
1: Welcome to the Manage Your Message Podcast, where professionals come for ideas and inspiration to grow by talking about their businesses more effectively and getting lots of other people to do the same. Here is your host, consultant, professional speaker, and author, Jim Carr.
0: Come on in, and thanks for joining us. I'm Jim Carr. The setup for our guest today is pretty unique in several ways, and we should start with how he and I first met. It was several years ago in Little Rock, where our growing family had our home in the proverbial and literal suburban cul-de-sac. A couple of houses down, some new neighbors were moving in, but I hadn't met them yet. One day, as I left the house, I heard this warm, strong voice, Hello! and found a man walking down the cul-de-sac to shake my hand and introduce himself. Now, have you ever had one of those times when you heard a voice or saw someone and just for a moment were transported back in time? I had that moment. The voice that I heard took me right back to a night during my undergraduate days at the University of Florida when Jack Kemp, then a congressman from New York State with a lot of ideas about economic opportunity and empowerment zones, was speaking on campus. That night helped me to actually get interested in economics to make sense of it. And to see it in an optimistic way. That voice, that face, that new neighbor I was meeting was just so Jack Kemp. And then the new neighbor introduced himself as Jeff Kemp. Yes, it was Jack's son. And there was another connecting thread. Jack Kemp, that former congressman, was not only Bob Dole's running mate for vice president in the 1996 presidential election, he was also a star quarterback. He played briefly in the NFL, but was a big time star in the American Football League which later merged with the NFL to form the league we know today. Jack Kemp was the AFL's most valuable player in 1965 as quarterback of the Buffalo Bills. So now back to his son and my new neighbor, Jeff Kemp. Jeff was also a familiar name in football. Where had he played? It it came to me though. Jeff had also been an NFL quarterback. And wasn't he the guy who had to take over one season for the legendary Joe Montana? As it turns out, Jeff Kemp quarterbacked in the NFL for 11 years, playing for the 49ers, as well as the Rams, Seahawks, and Eagles. He and his father Jack are one of only a handful of sets of fathers and sons who played quarterback in the NFL, including some names like Sims, Greasy, and Manning. So what was Jeff Kemp doing in Little Rock? Well, after his playing days, Jeff began work as a speaker and counselor, working with couples and business leaders, He had come to Little Rock to join an organization called Family Life, networking and speaking on how to strengthen families. We've come to know each other well as friends, and Jeff is working on his own now, doing more and more work these days with business leaders and companies, applying principles of learning and teamwork to improve their performance. Jeff is the author of Facing the Blitz, Three Strategies for Turning Trials into Triumphs, which includes a foreword by the legendary coach Tony Dungy and endorsements from people such as Mike Holmgren, William Bennett, Pat Lencioni, and Jim Nance. I've been nagging Jeff to join us on the podcast for several reasons. First, his story is pretty unique, and I believe we can all benefit from it. He had a great example from his late father, but there must have been heavy expectations that came along, too. He played college football at Dartmouth, not exactly a football factory. How did he even get noticed? And what's it like to step in for Joe Montana? What's it like to hear the cheers and boos from an entire stadium? How do you keep going in an environment where you're only as good as your last play? And for a conversation on business messaging and management, what must he have learned along the way from coaches such as Bill Walsh and Mike Holmgren? And what applies today, far away from the football field and in modern business? Jeff Kemp, welcome to the big show. Hey, hey, thank you, Jim. Good to be with you, buddy. Jeff, I don't know any better way of asking this for our listeners, but basically, what was it like being Jack Kemp's son? Now He was not only a great quarterback, but also a political icon, very nearly vice president of the United States. So how did you and he deal with inevitable expectations?
2: That's a really good question because, you know, uh, I think the starting point for how to live our lives is understanding who we are. And that sense of identity is not an easy thing to grab. Most of us boys want our dad to approve of us and think that we're strong, that we have what it takes, that we can do it. You know, we want to impress him. I remember wanting to impress my dad and one of his Buffalo Bill teammates that came to a wrestling match of mine when I was in fifth grade. And gosh, I thought I was going to do great and have them be so proud of me. And I got pinned by my great friend, Doug Hebbard. And I was crying. I was embarrassed. It was just shattering to me. And my dad didn't love me any less, but I felt bad because I thought that I had to succeed to look good in his eyes. So I never knew anything different than my dad being a professional football player and then a congressman so in that sense, I grew up with these expectations that I also would be a leader. My dad always said to us, "You can't be a leader. And he wasn't saying you need to be first string or you need to be the greatest. He was saying you set the course, you know. But I kind of interpreted that, Jim, as I got to be first string. I got to be on a good team. I got to perform well. So I put pressure on myself because of who my dad was. My dad didn't put pressure on me. He was pretty good at loving me unconditionally.
0: And what a great example you know, of setting the right expectations. One of the things that I seem to notice is that he had a very common and optimistic touch. You mentioned in Facing the Blitz about being with him on some campaign trips and how if there was a big event at a hotel or a restaurant that he would take time to go back into the kitchen areas and the back rooms. And so oh, yeah. what are the things that you remember and, and what did you draw from that example?
2: Well, I think I always saw my dad treat everyone as if they were important to the team. And, you know, a quarterback goes in the huddle and he doesn't say, hey, what town did you come from? What school did you play for? Uh, How much money do you got? What what, what race are you? Uh, What religion are you? He basically says, hey, can you block and can you run this route, catch this pass? Can we score with you and the team? And that philosophy of teamwork, of a diverse group of people, an inclusion attitude, and a come from behind, never give up, we can always make it better and win mentality That was Dad's mentality about America, not just football. And so I picked up on that. I remember going to Memphis with him on a campaign trail, and he didn't go first up to the fancy ballroom where this thousand-dollar plate fundraiser was held. We went down into the basement to the kitchens, and we saw the cooks and the chefs and the busboys, and all the people that were you know behind the scenes. And Dad started high-fiving them and talking to them. And yeah, this was a bunch of African Americans working low wage, but to him. They were people that deserved dignity and had a hope at the American dream. And that was his goal is to give everyone hope to lift, lift people's sights, lift their hopes, lift their behavior so they can reach their dream.
0: When you talked about, hey, you're a camp, be a leader. And I was thinking of another story that you shared in Facing the Blitz. It was 1991. You were at that time the starting quarterback for the Seattle Seahawks. And the team had just lost an important game to the Kansas City Chiefs. And of course, the quarterback always has to speak to the press after the game and takes a lot of blame and you know takes some credit you know, when things go well. But you're speaking to the press and it seemed like in that typical Kemp fashion, you were putting a very optimistic spin on things and looking forward. And you said, we're going to do better next week. We're going to turn the corner and go forward. Nothing controversial, not pointing any fingers, but... In the story, a few days later, one of the other leaders on the team, Eugene Robinson, came to you with an important message. Could you share the lesson from that?
2: Well, the first part of this is that Eugene and I were really close friends, and we were both able to speak the truth to each other. And I think that anyone in life, and especially anyone in business in a position of leadership, needs to have friends who can speak the truth to them, okay? Okay. And you need to give them permission. So Eugene comes to me on Monday or Tuesday after the game. He goes, hey, Jeff, some of the guys on the defense and some of the defensive coaches have been talking about you and and wondering if you're a stand-up guy. They heard that interview and they didn't think that you took much responsibility or blame for the loss. And they're questioning you. Oh, my gosh. That's my character that was being questioned. I don't think I've ever felt so challenged or hurt as I have when he said that. And I wasn't mad at Eugene, the messenger. I was thankful. I thanked him. But it really gave me the chance to self-examine. And what I realized, Jim, is that I really don't like to fail. And I don't like to be thought of as a failure. And I don't like attention on my mistakes and failures. And I'm an optimist. And I had overemphasized the optimism that we're going to improve and work hard the next week and be okay. And I had not stepped into the moment and accepted my responsibility. I hadn't taken the blame like a team looks for a leader to do. This is especially a message for a CEO or a manager, someone leading a team. If you don't take responsibility and apologize and say, I can do better. I didn't do right. This is what I did and it hurt us and I'm going to improve it. If you don't do that, no one else is going to take responsibility in your team. And so then the performance level is going to drop off all. So I got the chance to kind of wake up to my mistake and let them know that I knew that I was responsible as a quarterback to play better than that and that I just been overly optimistic. But later on, Jim, I realized sometimes I shade things and I move past my failures too quickly because I don't wanna feel bad about myself. And the truth is I can't engender great leadership and great followership unless I'm willing to face the truth about myself and people respect you far more when you do. So I don't say wallow in your pain and call yourself you know, a shameful loser. That's obviously not the formula. Fully grab responsibility and take the blame. Tell people you didn't do as well as you could. You want to do better. And that'll set a tone for the rest of the team taking responsibility when it's their turn.
0: When I'm working with executives and teams, you know, you got to understand that even if it doesn't say so on your website or on your business card, that in that position, you are a message leader, right? So the things that you say and don't say, Really set the tone. I think that's what you're getting at a bit. Oh, for sure. In that particular instance of your friend Eugene Robinson and just the nature of saying, hey, I kind of have to take one in a communication sense, take one for the team, right?
2: Yeah. I'm going to give an example from business. I'm coaching an insurance agency and have done some team building and speaking for them. And it's a situation where the owner had purchased the business and he needs to work on. Building teamwork and reshaping the culture and making a number of improvements. We had a team meeting where I was to give a speech, and he started off by introducing me and said some things to his team. But I was absolutely amazed and impressed. And I saw the eyes of all the people on his team, and I saw them lean in, and I saw the trust built when he did this particular thing. He said, Looking back over this last year, we didn't become a team, which is what my goal was. And part of the reason is because. I didn't lead us well enough. He said, here's three big mistakes that I've made. And he went through one, two, and three. And he explained exactly what he should have done and didn't do, or that he did do that he shouldn't have done, and how it hurt the team. In one case, his motive was, I didn't let this great salesperson go because I liked the profit they were generating for us, but I tolerated the damage to the culture and the unethical behavior. And he said, that was an error on my part that I'll never do again. That's not my character. That's not my standard. That was one of the most powerful leadership speeches I've ever given because he was humble. He took responsibility. He pointed specifically to his three big mistakes. And you could see the confidence of the team and the respect uh, rising.
0: And was showing respect to them in the moment, wasn't
2: he? Oh, for sure. When you tell people the truth, you're showing respect to people.
0: There's a special relationship. I would think between quarterbacks and wide receivers. Certainly in the offensive line and even if you're not hey, a big time football fan. The offensive line are the people that basically keep the quarterback in one piece, but the wide receivers are the ones out there, you know, catching the passes. The receivers are supposed to make it easy for the quarterback and the quarterback's supposed to make it easy for the receivers. My oldest son message managers as a receiver for his high school team. And the instruction he gets from his coaches, the admonition from his coaches is that basically, if you can touch it, if it's in your zip code, you're supposed to catch it. But Jeff, the goal for the quarterback is to make it super easy for the receiver, right? You're supposed to throw the ball into a very, very tight diameter.
2: Yeah, here's, here's what happens, Jim, in the summer in training camp at NFL teams, the receivers are in one meeting room and they're taught their responsibility. If they can touch it, they must catch it wherever it is. Jump up and get your ribs blown up. Miss six weeks. We'll put another guy in for you. We need that catch. Dive, slow down. If the ball's behind you, get hit. You got to catch anything close to you. That's high expectations of self, right? The purpose is to make the quarterback's efforts and the lineman's efforts pay off. Meanwhile, the quarterback is taught in his meeting room, You're accountable to throw the ball to a one foot diameter of accuracy, perfectly leading the receiver. So he doesn't have to slow down, dive, jump up, and he can keep running for a first down and be protected from the defenders. So the quarterback is expecting high standards of himself, the receiver high standards of himself. Neither of them is going into the situation saying, oh, I hope the other guy throws me a perfect pass because that's the only kind I want to catch, you know, (laughs) or the quarterback says, hey, This guy's got sticky gloves and long arms. I'm just going to throw the ball somewhere close and protect myself from those rushing defenders. That's not going to work for the team. So basically, the receiver and quarterback are both investors in the other's success, and that leads to team success. And I call this the paradigm of being an investor versus a consumer in relationships. And it applies in marriage. Husbands who consume from their wives drain the asset value, frustrate their wife, discourage their wife. They get a worse version of their wife. And over time, the couple falls apart and they are isolated. But if a husband and wife invest in one another, forgive first, apologize first, focus on the other person's interests, then they're adding value to the relationship. And that relationship gets better and better and better. The asset value grows. Well, we need to take that same approach definitely into marriage, but we need to take it at the work. Uh, Am I an investor today or a consumer? As a leader, am I investing in my people or do I just say, I want what I want, get it done, or I'm going to dock you? So an investor gets the best out of their people by sacrificing something of themselves and thinking about the
0: long-term. I was thinking back to that example from the insurance company. Yeah, That leader in the moment really stepped up. It would have been easy to just say, look, we need the dollars. Kind of like, hey, I need the first down, right? I need, this, I need the touchdown, and I don't really care about the long-term health of the culture. But he was able to say, look, there is a bigger picture here, and my responsibility is to invest in the relationship that we all have together.
2: Right. So in, in essence, while he was tolerating behavior that was damaging the culture and the credibility of the whole organization, even though it was bringing in profit to him, the leader was being a consumer. He was accepting profit at a price of culture and relationships and integrity. But when he stopped that and he chose to let that person go, and then he chose to apologize to the team for not doing that soon enough, he was sacrificing profit, sacrificing his pride and stepping into an awkward conversation to have to let someone go, right? That was an investment that he made in the culture, in the team in those individual people. And in the long-term, it'll raise the asset value of all of their lives and their business. But it takes a long-term view to be investors. Consumers are short-term oriented.
0: Let's talk a little bit, Jeff, about the relationship that you have had with some exceptional coaches in your playing career and and beyond your playing career as well. One of them was Bill Walsh, who won three Super Bowls as head coach of the San Francisco 49ers. He was Very innovative, known for the West Coast offense. I believe he was the first coach, at least the first that I know of, who would script a certain number of plays ahead of time before the game, so not just making one call after another. But he had a very big-picture strategic view, clearly a master of detail. But you say in facing the Blitz that Coach Walsh would make sure that everyone on the team, everyone running a play – Understood the big picture as well as the details of their role in it. So, could you talk a little bit about that and some other leadership and coaching lessons that you have learned over the years?
2: Well, you're right about Walsh being a master of the detail, a genius of the West Coast offense. He did script out the 21st plays. The purpose was he wanted to run unpredictable plays that weren't tied to the down and distance so that he could take a look at what defenses did versus these different formations in place. It kept them off guard. And it let you look at different defensive arrangements early in the game so you knew what to expect the rest of the game. And it also gave your offensive players crystal clarity on what are we going to do in the first 20 plays, which is really important to get their confidence up. I loved it as a quarterback, knowing what the first 15 or 20 plays was going to be. But here's the cool thing that Bill did. He'd pull us into the meeting room in the summer and getting ready to put in a play, say, Brown-Right, Fox 2, Z-Post. In essence, Brown-Right, Fox 2, Z-Post is a play-action pass faking a run and creating a deception to pull the defense into the line of scrimmage so that Jerry Rice can run a deep post route behind him. But just before he goes into all the intricate detail about how each player will execute that play and how important their job is in the play, he says, hey, the reason we're putting this play in today is because we want to get better at it every single day in practice throughout the rest of the year. We want to be scoring with this play in the playoffs, and we want to go to the playoffs and win the Super Bowl this year. That's our goal. And we want to become the dominant team in this league. And if we don't get better every single week and execute plays like this to perfection, we won't be a team that can win in the playoffs and win Super Bowls. So let's put this play in with a mind toward excellence and improvement, constant improvement. And then he'd explain what the linemen did and how they sacrificed and how the receivers sacrificed, what the quarterback did in his sacrifice and the running back in his fake and sacrifice running into the line without a ball, not getting any yards on the stat sheet but he's going to get his head smashed in because they think he's got the ball. Well, he explained what every individual did to one another so that we respected the sacrifice of others and were willing to make ours. And it was tied to the big vision of winning a Super Bowl. And that was different than other teams because other teams always put their plays in separate meeting rooms. Tight ends in one room, receivers in another room, linemen in one room, quarterbacks in a separate room. So you didn't get the whole picture. You were supposed to put the play together on the practice field. Bill put it all together so we respected one another's roles and he tied it to the big vision, the master goal of a Super Bowl. I loved his leadership.
0: It sounds like he was doing things that today we would talk about the notion of transparency, right? About what your motivation is for asking people to do certain things. Also, what we would call today that the making sure everyone understands the why of the organization and what the goals are and how everyone's part of it plays a role and connects to that big why. So even before modern language around it, he was doing those things.
2: Yeah. If you talk about, you know, Simon Sinek's principles that Bill was definitely starting with the why. Why? To win Super Bowls. Why do we want to win Super Bowls? To be a legendary team that wins more of them than anyone else in this decade. And with that why in mind, you then realize it takes sacrifice and then he would go into the detail but i think what set him apart was he made sure that he taught all of us certain aspects of other people's job so that we had a higher respect for their individuality and their contribution and their sacrifice and i think many times you know a, a husband or wife in a marriage the husband thinks man i'm the one that has to do all this travel and i got these long hours and i got to bear the load Financially, I got to coach all these little kids' teams. I do so much. Meanwhile, the wife is thinking, Man, I have this job and I've taken care of three kids and I keep this house clean and I plan all our birthdays and all our holidays and I handle our billing and our finances. And they're both thinking about what they do and not appreciating what the other does. And they're not doing it to serve the big cause. They're doing it because this is what I have to do. This is my job. Well, that drains the energy from a relationship. But if you articulate, What is the big why? The big why in this marriage is that we would be one team, that we would be one couple who loves each other and supports each other and compliments each other. The big why is that we're going to raise our kids to know how important our love is and that they're secure in our love. And we're a married couple and our family anchors around this great marriage. Well, you're going to raise kids that know how to get married someday, how to choose a good spouse. Take that idea into business. Do your people know the 10-year plan? Do they know the why? Do they know the value of your culture? Have you made it clear that you're not just trying to make a profit, though you do want to make a profit, you're trying to make an impact in people's lives. If they know that why, then you can start explaining to them why the person in the mailroom and why the person in tech support and why the person on the phone for the service and why the person traveling the country in sales and why the person in you know marketing and messaging, why they're all important. And it's okay for them not to be good at everything. Someone else is good at their other thing. So start with the why and then get specific not just about one person's job, but help them understand the value and sacrifices and some of the detail of other jobs. So the really big idea that Bill Walsh as a leader brought to us was he started with the why to win Super Bowls, and then he brought us all together, and then he showed us what our individual roles were so that we understood the sacrifice and the importance of one another, which really creates teamwork, and it increases individual sacrifice when you know the why and you know that others are sacrificing. You have more respect for one another, which is what creates trust. You know, trust is the key component for teamwork, Pat Lencioni says. So Walsh really accomplished that in a fabulous way by bringing us all together and combining the detail with the why.
0: Jeff, you organized, obviously, your book and a lot of the counsel that you give to your clients around this concept of the blitz. And again, for you, maybe non-football fans or those that don't follow it as closely, you certainly know it better than I, Jeff. But- a blitz is a, a strategy from the defense that's trying to come at you in an unexpected way with ferocity and speed and they basically want to force a big mistake. Now, it's risky on the defense's part too because if you attack from one way, you will naturally somehow be vulnerable in another way. And so, the quarterback can anticipate that blitz, then, you know, there's great opportunity there, but I wonder if you could speak a bit about The blitz, why you think that's such a good organizing framework for professionals and for leaders and what they can do to anticipate and deal with blitzes in both uh, their jobs and at home. Yeah, you
2: did a pretty good job explaining the blitz. I want to help a little bit more. So what happens is the defense will send more pass rushers than normal. Not just four linemen, but a couple linebackers and maybe a safety, sometimes a corner, and that means that you have a lot less people to protect, and there's a greater likelihood that you'll get hit sooner on the offense as a quarterback. But they have fewer people to cover the pass, so they're vulnerable, and it opens up some areas downfield. Typically, man-to-man coverage, and great quarterbacks are exciting. They're licking their chops. They're saying, "Bring it on! Give me a blitz." Drew Brees wants it to happen because he knows it's such a good opportunity. And uh, the blitz is a crisis. It's both danger. An opportunity. And they're right there in this short time, instant moment. So if a team is prepared for the blitz, if they've looked at film and been coached on the practice field, how to adapt, how to adjust, how to change their route or shorten their steps as a quarterback, get rid of the ball sooner, throw it to a different location, they can complete a touchdown pass and turn the blitz into the greatest play of the game. So the first thing you need to know is that blitzes are coming. You need to have a realistic view that life is imperfect, technology fails, Salespeople have a falling out with you. Another company competes with a product you didn't expect in a way you didn't expect. We get cancer, and sometimes we lose our job, and the economy turns south. Bad things happen, but blitzes are opportunity. so you need to have an opportunity mindset. The reason they're opportunities is because they wake you up to, in my view, A, how much you need God in a relationship with God, and his healing, his forgiveness, his power, his hope, his principles. B, it opens you up to your need for good, close teamwork and friendships. You can't face blitzes alone. And thirdly, it opens you up to the fact that you need to change. Like I got blitzed when my friend Eugene told me that the team thought I was a slacker and not taking responsibility. It was an opportunity to go rebuild relationship with that defensive coach, act differently to the other players, and start growing as a person who did take responsibility. So the blitz gives you the chance to change your character, but it also gives you the chance to change your behavior And sometimes businesses try something brand new because of a blitz that ends up being their greatest pathway for the future. And you wouldn't have tried it if you didn't hit an urgent crisis. So that's the perspective on the blitz. You need great teamwork. You need an opportunity mindset, and you need to be willing to sacrifice and focus on others, not just yourself saying, oh, I didn't want this to happen. (laughs) It happened. What are you going to do? Let's reach out and treat other people great, build a great team, and invest in our customers through this period.
0: Given those principles with the blitz and the kind of work that you're doing today, I mean, where do you see the biggest, most important, most potentially damaging blitzes coming at business leaders, business owners, and managers today? And how are you helping provide counsel to them?
2: Well, the blitzes do come in a lot of forms, but number one would be excessive busyness and taking too much on your own shoulders Even if you're succeeding well and building a good business, there might be a sense in the business owner that I'm losing the heart of my wife or my husband. I'm losing the heart of my teenager. The relationships on this team are not as strong as they should be, and some silos are developing, some pride and egos and division is developing. We're really not ready. If some big challenge hits us, we're not ready for people to pull together and solve problems like they're all owners. And a lot of that has to do with the fact that entrepreneurs have succeeded with a certain formula, and that formula isn't what will help them grow to be a fabulously led, empowered organization. They need to stop making all the decisions and start letting the decisions be made below them and teach people how to make decisions. Get input. Look for advice above you, below you, to the side and to the client. So the blitz is, I think, number one, when success is happening and the economy is strong, you get so busy and it's such a competitive world that your business owns you and your relationships and you have some struggle with that home life and balance. Secondly, you have some struggle with the relationships with people on your team because you're not slowing down to build them. And then the blitz can happen when the economy is tough. Then all of a sudden, financial pressure makes you make bad decisions and there's a lot of stress. So the thing that I do is I run something called the Champions Huddle. I bring CEOs and business owners apart for a Thursday night, all day Friday, most of Saturday. And we take a look at who are we as a leader? What are we basing our leadership in? Who are we in relationships to the people on our team and to our family? What is our long-term vision? And then how will we get there? You're not going to get there without great teamwork. So the real value-add of the Champions Huddle is you'll develop a game plan, your own game plan, based on the principles and paradigms and lessons I was talking about from Bill Walsh, Steve Kerr, Pete Carroll, John Wooden, Pat Lencioni, and other good business examples. You'll shape a game plan for building a strong team, a trusting team, a candid and a truthful team, a team that understands its big why, but has a commitment to investing in relationships and respecting one another's roles. So that'll be the big value add to the business that makes you more profitable, But you'll also learn how to create some balance and kind of regain the hearts of both yourself and those loved ones in your life. So I really love doing Champions Huddles and helping leaders become their best self and empower others in the organization to take it to the next level, because you'll not get there with the same formula that you had before.
0: How can people learn about the Jeff Kemp team, how to be in touch with you and be in touch with the book and just your ideas of how you're working with leaders today?
2: Well, they can reach me at my website. It's jeffkempteam.com. My email is jeff at jeffkempteam.com. Pretty simple, jeff at jeffkempteam.com. I'd love to hear feedback from anyone that was listening today and wants to talk about these things further. I can help them out. But if you go to jeffkempteam.com, you'll explore what the champion's huddle is and what my team training and speaking is all about in this area of teamwork, relationships, trust, facing blitzes, turning negatives into positives. And a large part of my life is shaping the lives of men to be men who are strong on behalf of others, not who are consumers and just about themselves. So I do an awful lot of speaking and organize groups and retreats uh, for men around their identity and their marriage and their fathering and their friendships, because none of us can do well if we don't have close friends that are keeping us honest, helping us grow and pointing us in the same direction. And it's fun. It's fun to have friends. It's fun to have a huddle. It's something that too many men don't have. I think women have an advantage over men in that sense, and that they're wired for a relationship and they kind of keep their friendships going. But I think every one of us, men and women, need to remember that you need to have a small huddle of friends that truly are committed to your growth and your well-being, not just to saying what you want, not just sharing some entertainment experience, but really They're in this to make you a better person and you're in this to make them a better person. That's the type of friends that I want to cultivate. And I think every business leader needs that because it's lonely at the top and you got to create close friendships that help you stay anchored, stay real and treat your people with respect and relational priority.
0: Message managers, Jeff and I had a quick word before we began recording today and Jeff had the wish that we not be too fluffy or conceptual, but I think as you put it, Jeff, Let's make sure we're real and raw enough to really help people with what they're facing today. And I think we've done that. Jeff Kemp, my friend, thank you so much for joining the Manager Message Podcast.
2: My pleasure, Jim.
0: Thanks for joining us on the Manager Message Podcast. You won't want to miss a single episode, so make sure you subscribe to the podcast and please take a brief moment to rate and review the five-star ratings or the ones that matter so that it's easy for other professionals, to find us and join the fun. If you find these conversations useful in your business, then I can recommend another free weekly resource, the Message Manager Memo. It's a brief weekly email with practical tips and examples. You'll actually enjoy seeing it in your inbox. It takes about, oh, 10 seconds to sign up on my website, jimcar.com, K-A-R-R-H. I would be happy to connect with you on LinkedIn, and you can follow me on Twitter, at Jim Carr. And let's talk directly. You might have suggestions for the podcast or want to bounce a messaging idea. Perhaps your organization needs to sharpen its message and equip more people with the tools and confidence to share it widely and consistently. Perhaps you know of an association or company that would be a great fit to have me visit as a professional speaker. You can email me directly at jim at jimcar.com and set up a time to talk by phone if you like. My mobile number is also on the website. Try to keep it simple. We have three steps, no pressure. You and I have a phone or Zoom conversation for a few minutes. We assess what it is you're trying to accomplish and whether I can help. And if so, then we begin to put together a plan. As always, I appreciate your time and enthusiasm for letting your world know about what you do and its value. Until next time, message managers, thanks for joining the conversation.
1: Thanks for joining us on the Manage Your Message podcast with Jim Carr. You'll find show notes and other resources at manageyourmessagepodcast.com and jimcarr.com. Please help us serve you and other message managers by subscribing to, rating, and reviewing this podcast. And connect with Jim on LinkedIn and on Twitter at Jim Carr. Until next time, we hope your business message is shared well and often.